why Christians can't sin. Now, how limited. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to interact together. Pray that your Holy Spirit will give us wisdom, that your truth might be clearly understood, the Holy Spirit might give us a combat knowledge of your truth, that we might be able to be effective in the hands of the Spirit to reach out to others and bring them to discipleship. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, I want to sort of uh, have a time of interaction to start with and sort of look back over what we've covered uh, to entertain questions that you have about what we have covered. And I, I say again what we have covered, but uh, I just want to sort of uh, have a relaxed time. I want to recommend some books to you, and uh, then at the finish of the hour I want to go over indwelling and regeneration, but that won't take a lot of time. Okay, first of all, I'd like to recommend a terrific book that I think uh, every Christian should read. I had to read it about two times to begin to enter into what the guy was saying. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not difficult. I think every Christian can understand it. It's just that there's so succinctly stated you read right over it the first time. It's green letters. Now, this has been called the, the principles of spiritual growth. Also, it's under two covers. One is the green letters. The other is the principles of spiritual growth. But this, I believe, is something that everyone should read. Now, this talks about the principle of identification, the principle of uh, our union with Christ and being complete in him. And uh, it just talks about generally how we grow as a Christian. It's very good. It's in the bookstore. What is that? The author is Miles Stanford, S-T-A-N-F-O-R-D, Stanford. Uh, he has some other books that I think are good. The Principles of Position, this blue one, same author. The Reckoning That Counts. They're all worth reading. Now, I know that there are some of you who really want to dig into theology deeper, talk to some of you, and... Uh, I think that if you, you want to begin a process of really learning the Scripture so that you can use it, that Chafer's systematic theologies are worth the investment. Now, they cost somewhere around $38, but it's a set of eight volumes. And the eighth volume is an uh, uh, index. It's, it's got a scripture index so that if you're having problems over some scripture, you just take your index and look up and it'll show you where that 
scripture passage is commented on and tell you which volumes that it's commented on, what page. It's extremely useful for someone who's in crusade. Uh, also, it takes up subjects. Let's say you've come up with a subject, a doctrinal subject over which you're having a problem. Well, it's got an index of subjects. And again, it'll tell you where that subject is commented on, which volume, what page. Uh, it's got an author index, which helps you with problems of church history and so forth. In other words, it's a regular encyclopedia of theology. And uh, the good thing about Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer is that he's a man who was a tremendous evangelist personally and yet a tremendous student of the Word of God. I still run into people around the country who, when they find out I went to Dallas Theological Seminary, which Dr. Chafer founded, they come in and tell me I accepted Christ during some meeting that Dr. Chafer had here. And uh, so because of his extensive ministry as a, an evangelist and a teacher, he makes things very practical. And most theologies are so impractical that uh, you can't get much benefit from them. But Chafer is tremendously practical. He's a man who really lived what he taught. C-H-A-F-E-R. Of course, the main reason I like him is because he's a man who really had the picture on grace. And boy, there just aren't very few of those around. He really had the picture. But his volume three in that set is worth the price of the whole set. That's on the doctrines of salvation. And it's just tremendous. Uh... His volume two has a section in it which very, th I don't know of any other theology that even covers the subject. It's angelology, and you'll find a lot of what we talked about uh, on the angelic conflict and so forth covered in there. But it's, uh, it's a very important part of scripture, I think something that people need to have a treatment on. Uh, a useful, another useful volume is uh, Baker's Dictionary of Theology. It's a handy reference work. It's, it's mainly handy in, in that it gives a clear definition of various doctrines. It's, they're succinctly stated, and it gives, a lot, it gives the main scriptures on the various doctrines, which makes it very helpful. It's a good one-volume reference work. And uh, if you are, since I saw yesterday that so many of you are coming on staff, that's the reason I'm taking time to give you some ideas to accumulate a few good books that you can really use in the ministry. Uh, another one is Young's Analytical Concordance. I, I don't know of any tool that I have that's more useful than that Young's Analytical Concordance. This is the way you find out about something. You, you take a word and you trace it through the scriptures and see how it's used. And that's what a concordance is. But Young's has the added advantage that uh, it takes up the... Uh, it takes up the original words and categorizes them underneath the English word. And it shows the different uh, original words which are translated by different 
by the same English word, and then it categorizes them that way. You cannot know anything about Hebrew and still get a great deal of Hebrew just by using Young's Analytical Concordance, for instance. I see some very lovely young ladies having to stand up back there. Is the age of chivalry gone in here? Uh, here are some chairs up here, honey child. Come on right up here. <laughs> you know, one, one of the staff members yesterday told me that his wife had to stand up during this whole session because some guys wouldn't move their books off the chairs. Which brings up a subject <laughs> that's dear to my heart. You know, men, a man of God is considerate. And uh, if your theology doesn't work out that way, you've got the wrong theology. A man of God is considerate. And this means, you know, I really hate to see a guy come, uh, come up for, to pick up a girl and just blow his horn and sit on his big tokus while the girl opens the door for herself. If you really want to be a spirit-filled person that exhibits the qualities of being spirit-filled, you open the door for the girl. And you be polite, just plain old common chivalry. And watch how the girl responds to that. You know, a girl can't resist a guy who's really caught up with Christ and considerate. Doesn't mean they'll marry you, but at least they'll think a lot of you. <laughs> All right, uh, now some questions over some of the things that we've covered. Yes, sir. Would I comment on the book in the bookstore called The Authority of the Believer? Yes, I will. I think it's one of the greatest books ever written. Uh, it's a little booklet called The Authority of the Believer, which will develop in more detail what I developed yesterday. And I think that uh, this is something that you need for combat. It's, it's really great. There's the authority of the believer and also the authority of the intercessor. And uh, both of them are excellent. The most important one is the authority of the believer. I've forgotten the author, but it's just a little booklet, and they've got hundreds of them over there, I think. I ordered thousands of them one time. Can a Christian deny Christ? And are there certain things which a Christian just would not do? Well, now, what do you mean by denying Christ? And I'm not trying to be facetious. I, I really want to know. Yeah, well, now you've got a different subject. First you ask, 
can a Christian deny Christ? And secondly, you added that he, he goes off into a life where he says Christ is irrelevant and so forth. That's two different things. What do you think Peter did? I don't know about that. In John chapter 20, it says, Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. And, of course, that was a special ministry of the Holy Spirit given to the disciples until the actual indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But uh, that still doesn't relieve anyone from the responsibility of the normal Christian life or the normal life of a believer. In other words, whatever way the Christians uh, responded to God in the Old Testament still has to be true today. And that was by faith. But uh, the answer in short to your question is this. Yes, a believer can deny Christ, but he hasn't lost his salvation. But if a person is a believer, they cannot habitually deny Christ without something happening. Now, it is a fact that if a person is a true believer, that he will, as, a gen as we look at his life, the general thrust of his life will be that he is a believer and he believes. He keeps on believing, you see. But why does he keep on believing? It's because of the new nature that is given to him at the moment of regeneration. That's something we're talking about later today. Christ comes to dwell within the person, and he cannot lose his faith completely, although he can lose it at times temporarily. There are basically three reasons why once a, per a person... Uh, is a Christian, he can't sin as he pleases. Now, this is what bothers everyone when you say that Christ forgives a man past, present, and future sins. Because the idea is given, well, what's going to keep him from going out and grossing it up? And so, the idea is given. Uh, in fact, I had this presented to me one time by a minister. When I was a young believer, I'd just gotten a hold of grace under Bob Thien. And I mean, I hit orbit. My life changed so radically in a matter of a week that people couldn't believe it. And I'll guarantee you one thing, I wasn't sinning as much. I was, in fact, sin wasn't even a problem. I was so caught up with Christ in the fact that I was forgiven and that I really wasn't under God's law. I wasn't under the principal law. All the Lord wanted me to do was depend upon the Holy Spirit. Now, we are to do that. You tell a man that he's not under law and then don't tell him about being filled with the Spirit, you have promoted anarchy. But the reason we're not under law is because the Holy Spirit leads us and empowers us in the way God wants us to go, and he doesn't need a law to do it. But I was excited about this, and a man who was a minister, a friend of mine, got to talking to me about it, and he said, well, now... You go around telling people that they're forgiven completely, that uh, they're not under any law. All they have to do is trust Jesus. Now, 
Let's say here's a guy, he's out in the back seat of a car, he's been smooching it up with a girl, and all of a sudden it comes to the issue, shall they go all the way or not? Now here this guy is, he thinks, well, now if I do it, I'm not going to lose my salvation. So what in the world is going to keep that guy from going all the way? You know, what he was saying was that fear is a greater motive than love. And you know what I told him? I said, look, Pastor, nobody has been more afraid of God than I've been. And I'll tell you, when I was at that point, it didn't work. I did it anyway. So fear has never stopped me when the chips were down, and it never will. But now that I know God's love for me, and I know what he's made available to me, and I know that I am forgiven, I don't want to. And this works, the other doesn't. And furthermore, when you fail and you think that God's going to sever you from Christ, once you do fail, you're totaled out. Then Satan's got you in his hands because you've already set up a false system. You've said that, well, boy, if I do fail, well, God will never have a thing to do with me. So when you fail, you're, you're out. You're down for the count. God didn't say that. But there are three reasons why a Christian can't sin as he pleases if he's a true believer. Now, he can sin, but he can't live in it. Here are the three reasons. Number one, because at the moment a person becomes a believer, he receives a new nature, which is the very life of God. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse... Uh, Twenty-two and following. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. The nature that the Holy Spirit puts within us and what Jesus called the new birth is a nature which is created in the likeness of God. And it uh, is created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Now this new nature is able to know God personally. It's able to understand God's truth as the Holy Spirit teaches it. And there's one thing about the new nature that is in you, the new self. It cannot sin, and it always desires to follow God. Now, this is the reason that once you're born again, you can't sin as you please. Because you're, you, there, the real important part of you now is the new self, and that new self is miserable when you're sinning. You can sin, but you can't be happy in it. It's just like, let's say that we could take a pig and turn it into a lamb. 
Well, you could take that lamb and uh, it could fall in the mud puddle, but it couldn't be happy in the mud like it used to be because it now has the nature of a lamb and lambs don't like mud. So when you throw it in a mud puddle, it'll try to get out because its nature's different. But you take a pig and you can wash it up, put perfume on it, tie a ribbon around its neck, and that's, that's what religion does. And you take that pig and you put it in the house, see? And one day you leave the door ajar and forget to uh, keep the door closed, and out goes the pig straight for the mud puddle. Why? Because its nature's never been changed. And there are people who profess that they know Christ, but they don't. But when I say that, I don't want everyone to start questioning, do I really trust Christ? It isn't, do you really trust Christ? It's just plain, do you trust Christ? Have you accepted the gift of, of salvation, and have you seen that you couldn't do anything that Christ did at all, and you just accepted a gift of salvation? Now, if that is what you've done, you are a Christian, and you have a new nature. And as a matter of fact, the evidence that you are a Christian is that you notice an, an increased battle inside of you. That's one of the evidences that there is a Christian. There's a civil war that begins inside of the Christian because the old nature begins to battle with the new, and a new Christian it becomes more aware of temptation than he ever was when he was a non-Christian. Now That's why we have to understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit, because you can really go to the bug house quick. Listen, a Christian has much more susceptibility to mental illness than a non-Christian because there are more things at work within him. There are more conflicting things. Inside of you, every Christian, in a sense, is a schizophrenic. There are two different natures, totally alien to each other. Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, and Romans chapter 7, which we'll be covering next week. There's Christian schizophrenia. That is, you've got two natures that, which are really alien to each other and always battling each other unless you depend on the Holy Spirit. But there's one thing for sure. You have to get mighty calloused in sin before you can be anything like happy in it. You can get in it, but you can't be happy. All right, the second reason that a, a person who's a true believer can't be happy in sin and he can't live in it is because the Holy Spirit comes to live within him in his new nature. Now, every time you knowingly sin by not depending on the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is grieved, Ephesians 4.30. And when you grieve the Holy Spirit, it's going to grieve you. Because the Holy Spirit desires with a passion to follow God. And the Holy Spirit will point out when you have knowingly sinned. And it will bug you until you realize you've been forgiven and you just begin to walk by faith again. When you start walking by faith again, you realize what Christ has done, everything just great. 
Then you realize you're under the one great commandment. Thou shalt not sweat it. You just walk in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, not trying to see if everything's, if you got uh, all of the characteristics of Christianity in you, you just trust that as you depend on the Holy Spirit, what is necessary will be there. That will keep you from introspection, which is the deadliest enemy of faith. All right, now, another reason that a Christian can't sin as he pleases, you know, it is possible for a person to be a brute for punishment and to stop walking by faith and to get into sin, and their new nature makes them miserable, but they manage to keep in it until they make calloused their conscience. And the Holy Spirit keeps working upon us until we can't hear his voice anymore. It's not that he's not still speaking. We just become so callous we can't hear the voice of the Spirit anymore. And then we can have a relative calm of sin until phase three sets in, and that's discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and following. Please turn there. Verses, or at page 384, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him, for those whom the Lord hates, he disciplines. Is that what it says? He scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline, or literally, it is because of discipline that you endure. Discipline is one of the reasons we survive in this life as a believer. Because God, the word discipline, the root the root of that word in the original is to train. And God regards discipline as a training. And it's not always because of some sin committed that you're disciplined. It sometimes is because God sees you're about to fall into an area of weakness and he, he uh, will bring in discipline in order to keep you from falling. But it is a training measure. And uh, one of the surest ways I can tell whether a person is a Christian or not, and I've had to do this many times on the campus, here's some fraternity guy accepts Christ and he gets, uh, he gets blessed and on the first week he's really going great and all of a sudden he gets all messed up with the fraternity parties, he gets drunk for a weekend and gets involved with sex again, and pretty soon... Uh, he gets under the pile of guilt. He feels that God hadn't really forgiven him, and that drives him farther away from God. And uh, so they see me coming, and they, they cross the street so they won't have to talk to me. And so you just begin to watch. And uh, I've seen this happen so many times 
you watch the guy. And after a while, all of a sudden, things start happening in their life. Their world gets turned upside down. Discipline. Then I breathe a sigh of relief. He's really a Christian. Because, you see, if a guy's not a Christian, God just lets him go. But if he is a Christian, discipline is going to come because it says he disciplines every son. And then it says in verse uh, 7, it is because of discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Yes, sir. Uh-huh. Well, in the parable of the sower, I believe that every person where, or every illustration there where the seed took root, that this was a believer. There's only, in other words, there are three believers there, three different kinds of believers. The point of the parable is the productivity of various Christian lives, you see. There's one who never became a believer in the parable. Well, the one in rocky ground who uh, endures for a season and then fades away is the believer who just tubes out. And there are some like that. And, yeah, he gets jerked out of this life. There is a sin unto death. But that's not something that you should worry about. The person who is in danger of the sin unto death is the guy who doesn't care anymore. If you're afraid you've committed the sin unto death, then you haven't gotten there yet. Because <laughs> you're still concerned. But the, I, I had, uh, as many know, during IBS three years ago, I had to fly to Houston to bury one of my best buddies. God started seminary with and he was a guy who knew exactly what he was doing he left seminary got into a life of, of being away from the Lord and uh, I talked to him many times others talked to him he knew he was in sin but he just didn't want to come back he felt guilty about it and he uh, but he just didn't come back and so finally he, got in, he, he was a pilot, and he was doing some stunts, and he got into a tail-first spin and hit, drove his head three feet in the ground, killed him instantly. Now, I know that that was a sin unto death in his case. But God had given him every chance, years and years. But you see, if a person's a Christian, God will work with us, and the average Christian never even gets into that area. The average Christian, you get into sin, that's not the sin unto death. The one is just with a guy who gets so calloused, he just doesn't care anymore. God brings uh, conviction, he brings discipline, and nothing affects him. He just says, I know what I'm doing, but I don't want to do anything about it, and then God will take him out. Still a believer, though. Yes, sir. What's that? No, he doesn't lose his salvation. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, please. 
Now, there's one thing that this guy knew for sure, and that was that he had believed in Christ and that Christ was in his life. He knew that right up to the end. And Christ was in his life, no question about it. But, uh, you know, there's a way that we are to follow people up in that way. I told you about the action group at Corinth, didn't I? about how Paul approached the people at Corinthians? Well, just to illustrate this and then to zero in on chapter 5 in a special way, suppose that you led a bunch of people to Christ and you followed them up for a year and a half and, and you got them established and then you went away to work in another field and all of a sudden someone brought the message to you that your action group back uh, at this place was uh, all fouled up. There were guys that were uh, saying, I am of Braun, another says, I am of Lindsay, another says, I am of uh, Counts, and so forth. And they have these horrible splits, and everybody's worshiping men instead of God, which is a terrible thing, by the way. And then also, there's some of the guys who are going over and having immoral relations with the prostitutes. They're holding communion service, and some of them are getting drunk at communion. And uh, there's a big uh, raging battle over the resurrection. Some say that there is no resurrection of the dead. And uh, also they're, uh, they're having some problems. Some people have taken each other to the law courts and are suing each other because of uh, uh, something that they took. Now, how would you begin a follow-up letter to a group like that? Well, let me show you how Paul did. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Because that's exactly what was happening in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we have the men going to the prostitutes. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we have the, all of the splits in the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we have the people going to law with each other. Or is it 1 Corinthians 4? 1 Corinthians, the beginning of 1 Corinthians 6, they're suing each other in the church. Brothers suing each other in the courts. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we have a unique uh, piece of uh, sexual immorality. A man was actually having immoral relations with his stepmother. And uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you have the people getting drunk at the Lord's table and so forth. Now, Let's look at how Paul begins a follow-up letter to this crowd. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified, perfect tense, have been sanctified in the past with results you go on being sanctified forever. That's the idea. They have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, why are they sanctified? Because they've been put into Christ, and God sees them as he does Christ. Saints by calling. Now, can you imagine calling this bunch of people saints? Now, we think of a saint today as one who has been canonized by the church as saint. And you know it's interesting, that the business of making saints out of people... I noticed that they always wait a century or so after the guy's dead. And I think this is so that everyone who knew him forgets how sinful he was. <laughs> it's 
so that we can say that here was a guy who is virtually sinless and he's now a saint. No, every believer is a saint. The word saint means to be set apart as God's possession, and the minute you're put into Christ, you are his possession. You are a saint. So he calls them saints. With all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Paul does a little humorous thing here, if you know what's behind it. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. <laughs> you get the point? He's thanking God for grace because if it wasn't for it, they would have been destroyed. So he's real thankful about grace because there wouldn't have been any, anyone to write to it wasn't for the grace of God. That in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. They were waiting for the ultimate trip. The revelation of Christ means that, that uh, secret unveiling of Christ, which will occur... When Christ suddenly steps into the atmosphere above and no non-Christian will see him, but every Christian will be caught up to meet him in the air and change from mortal immortality without seeing physical death. He says they were waiting for that. And they were going to be in it, too. And he says in verse 8, or I should say in verse 6, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. Now, what do you think that means? You see, there's one thing that was certain in Paul's mind. He had been with these people, and he knew that they were true believers. And he doesn't start the usual jazz that people do when someone gets out of it. Are you sure you're a Christian? He knew they were Christians. They had actually accepted Christ, and so he wasn't saying, did you really believe? Well, now, how much do you have to really believe? Or did you believe with your will, intellect, and emotions? Did you totally commit yourself with your whole person and will, intellect, and emotion? Well, how much do you have to totally commit? By the way, there are very few Christians who do that now, even. So we're asking a man who's totally depraved to do something that few Christians rarely do consistently. That's not scriptural. But he knew that they had accepted the gift of forgiveness, and so he, he, he says the testimony of Christ has been confirmed. I saw your life after you were a believer, and I knew that you were believers, and I'm not calling that into question now. So he says in verse 8, after he says they're waiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now is that grace? Think of what these people were doing, and he said that Christ will keep on confirming you blameless. Now they weren't blameless in their experience. But as far as God was concerned, in Christ, they were blameless. And so he's keeping them from getting under the cloud of guilt so that they run from God. 
but you'll see how he brings them to see that they're guilty so that they can recognize their forgiveness and start walking in the Spirit again. He really jacks them up in this letter, but he starts off by showing their, their uh, eternal relationship to God has not been disturbed. And so he says, God is faithful through whom you were called. And the implication is you're not. God is, but you ain't. God is faithful through whom you were called into the fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, in the light of the people he was writing to, that is utterly fantastic. This is one of the most classic passages in the Word of God. But now let's look at 1 Corinthians 5 very quickly, where he deals with one of those incidences. First Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 5.1 It is actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality such a, of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. In other words, he says, now as gross as Corinth is, they don't even do that. And he says, and you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. Now there is one thing that God does command, and this is true of any Christian fellowship, that if there are people who knowingly are sinning, that two believers who are spiritual in the spirit of love should go to that person and tell him about it and seek to get him to begin to depend upon Christ again and to admit that he sinned, to agree with God that he sinned. That is, if the guy doesn't take care of it himself, he keeps on in it. Now, if he will not do that, he is to be put away from the fellowship until he does. You don't tolerate a bunch of people running around gross in the fellowship. Yes. Well, the Holy Spirit had worked in his life, evidently, but he hadn't responded to it. Well... If a person after a period of time does not deal with sin themselves, then believers do have a responsibility to go to him in the spirit of love and seek to get him to deal with it. And Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, talks about that. And uh, you see, you go and, re and just make sure the person knows you've got your problems and you have to deal with them and you're not looking down your spiritual proboscis at him and you're not flicking spiritual ashes on him, but you're, you're there with him and, and help trying to get him to see that he needs to believe God to trust the Holy Spirit to work in his life, to trust the Holy Spirit to change his attitude. Now, it goes on to say, You have not mourned instead in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this though, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, 
with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for destruction of the flesh for the purpose that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, did you get the point? In other words, Paul turned this man over for physical death. But he said his spirit will be saved in the day of the Lord. So he hadn't lost his salvation, although he forfeited his physical life. But let me tell you the sequel to this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, this man did agree with God that he was guilty and began to trust the Lord again, and Paul removed the edict of physical death. So he didn't die. And he told the people to receive him back in the fellowship. Because our goal is not to punish, but to bring people back to faith, you see. We're not punishing people. The Lord disciplines in order to bring them back to faith. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, Sufficient unto the man is the punishment or the discipline inflicted by the many. And receive him back. Yes, sir. Well, I'd sure like to, but we're really at the end of the hour. All right, let me ask you a question. Now, it's up to you. We're at the end of my hour, my 45 minutes. Do you want to sit here for about six more minutes and take this up? All right, if you don't want to, get up and get out. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 5, you have to take it up beginning with verse 11. There's where Hebrews chapter 6 begins. And the context is talking about a group of believers who had been believers for a long time, and they needed to be teachers again or be taught again the, the elementary principles of the oracles of God, verse 12. He said they have need of milk and not solid food. So we've got a problem of people who had been believers a long time, and for some reason they've retrogressed in their understanding. They have become, they have gone from a relative maturity back to immaturity again. And he says you ought to be teachers now, but you're not. And then he talks about the, the fact that there are milk truths in the Bible and there are solid food truths. That is, there's both simple truths in the Scripture, but the more you grow, the more you're going to understand in the Scripture. You read the same book and get much more out of it as you grow mature. And uh, yet he says in verse 14, but solid food is for the mature who because of practice, that is, they... They, uh, by faith, put into action the things they know in their life, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, now what's the therefore, therefore? Therefore refers back to what has just been said in 5.11 through 14. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. Now, there is the subject of the whole context, pressing on to maturity. 
not laying again a foundation of repentance from. And there are six things which are to be repented from. Repentance is the controlling word over the next six statements. And so he says, not having to lay again, or not laying again, a foundation of repentance. Now the word repentance is metanoeo in the original Greek, which means to have a change of mental attitude about something. Not laying again a foundation of changing your mental attitude about dead works, faith toward God, instruction about washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. You see, the epistle to the Hebrews was written to Hebrews. Profound. And Hebrews, these people to which this letter was written, were a group of people who had been trained in false Judaism. And all they knew was all of these washings of the Pharisaic traditions and animal sacrifices and all of these things. And so when they became believers, they had to be taught these elementary things. They had to be shown that any works for salvation was dead and unacceptable. They had to be shown that the real issue was faith toward God. The instruction about washings meant that you weren't, a, you weren't a gross sinner in the eyes of God because you don't wash your hands before you eat. Now, that was just one of the many washing ceremonies the Pharisees had, and Jesus takes that up in Mark chapter 7. And all of these other things have to do with things, special instructions for Jewish converts. And these represent the elementary teachings of Christ to them. Now he says, not laying again these ABCs of Christianity, and he said, and this we shall do if God permits, he says, that to bring about this repentance about those elementary things which they should know. He says, and we'll bring about this change of attitude about these things again if God permits. For in the case of those who have been once enlightened, have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Now that verses 4 and 5 show that they're definitely believers. Those are things that could only be true of believers. And uh, then in verse 6 he said, And then have fallen away. They have been believers and they have fallen away. Now he says it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Now let me ask you a question. Repentance about what? In context, please. About what? Right, exactly. He's already explained about repentance in verses 1 and 2. You see, the meaning of a word is determined by its usage and context. Now that's the first rule of any interpretation. So he's talking, he said, they have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them to repentance about the ABCs of Christianity. That is, they've gone back into the old Jewish ways and they can't have their mind changed about it until something takes place. He says, C, 
sense. Now, if you have a New American Standard Bible, I want you to look uh, to look over in the column reference under verse 6, where it says, while. Now, what we have here, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God, that is what we call a participial uh, clause in the original Greek. Now, here are some rules of grammar which will show the answer to this. A participial clause can be translated as one of uh, several ways. First, it can be translated as a conditional clause, and that's the way the King James translators translated it, a conditional clause. It says, if they shall crucify the Son of God afresh. Or it can be translated as a result clause which is the way the New American Standard translators flub the dub. Since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, or it can be translated as a temporal clause. There are many other possibilities, but for sake of time I won't go into it. It can be translated as a temporal clause, which is the alternative they put in the column, while they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh or to make it more clear, so long as they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh. Now these were Hebrews who were offering animal sacrifices, and animal sacrifices were the foreshadow of the crucifixion of Christ. They were a picture of the cross. And now that they know that, and they're going back and offering animal sacrifices in order to escape persecution, that was what was going on then, they were actually crucifying the Son of God afresh because of their knowledge of that fact that it was a prediction of the cross. So what he's saying is, look, it's impossible to renew you again to repentance, even about the elementary things of Christ, so long as you keep on crucifying the Son of God afresh. Now you have got to stop offering animal sacrifices so the Holy Spirit can begin to teach you again. The Holy Spirit can't teach a carnal Christian. And that's the teaching of the verse. And the illustration here is uh, conclusive. Verses 7 and 8, it says, For the ground that drinks the rain which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and it's close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. Now, who is the believer in this illustration? Or what is the believer? The ground. Correct. Now, the believer is the ground. The rain is the grace of God, especially the Holy Spirit. The rain brings... Uh, that which makes the ground able to produce, and that's primarily the Holy Spirit and the Christian. Now, the ground can produce two kinds of uh, fruit, either thorns and thistles, or it can produce good fruit. Now, if it produces good fruit, it's accepted with God. If it produces thorns and thistles, what happens? It's burned off. But you can't destroy the ground, only the fruit of it. And that's exactly what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, and I'll let you read that. 
This is talking about the fact that people either lose rewards or they gain rewards, but he himself will be saved. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you that we can go on to maturity as we just simply walk by faith and the Holy Spirit makes us into what you want us to be. As we're available to the Spirit moment by moment, in our conscious life we're brought into your will. And Father, I pray that this wonderful reality of the final work of Christ might be understood and believed that no one will blaspheme Christ and his work by saying that you can be lost again. In Jesus' name, amen. Lecture is Regeneration. Now, Hal Lindsey. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, that we, through his poverty might have everything and riches and life and dwell with you. We thank you, our Father, that this salvation, which is offered so freely, cost you everything. And in this we see the greatness of your unfathomable love, which has brought upon us a riches which heaven itself will have to unfold. We thank you that eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. But we have a foretaste through the Holy Spirit today, and we pray that he might illumine us to our riches in Christ in this hour. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. I'm ready for bear today. we got a lot of things to cover and uh, want to... I want you to really get these things. By the way, your final examination is going to be a project. And uh, I'm really excited about these papers that you turned in on doctrine. I think that most of them are really great, and all of them are good. And... Uh, so your class project is going to be to do the same thing with the rest of the doctrine that we cover. And that's going to be your final exam. And uh, your grade will be given on the basis of, uh, did you get the point? Did you see how the doctrine applied to the gospel and to the Christian life? All right, remember the format now will be a definition of the doctrine. Second, the main scriptures. Third, an illustration or a diagram. Fourth, how this applies to or how it relates to the gospel and to the Christian life. Now, I want you to, to do this with all of the doctrine that we've covered in the course. You've already done part of it, so I want you to do it with the rest. Where did we leave off on the doctrine? Was it with uh, reconciliation? All right. I want you to do justification, which we've covered, identification, forgiveness, 
freedom from Satan. And today we'll do regeneration, the doctrine of the indwelling of the Spirit. We've also done the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So on. So you pick up these subjects now as we go on. All right. We're going to start off with regeneration. I want to review for a second. Here's the universal barrier that separates all men from God. The barrier of God's character, which is perfect, and he can't have fellowship with anyone who's imperfect because God is perfect justice. He's absolute. Here's God's character. Because God is absolute righteousness and perfect justice, His righteousness looked upon man and said, I cannot accept you, you're no longer like me. His justice said the wages of man rebelling against God is death. So justice had to pour out God's wrath upon man's sin. And so, what doctrine is it that tells of the work of Christ which removed that as a barrier? Propitiation, right says that Christ so completely bore the wrath of God against my sin that God ain't mad anymore. That now God can accept me and pour out his love upon anyone who will simply believe in Christ. God could never compromise his righteousness and justice in order to give love, but now that righteousness and justice are satisfied through Christ's work on the cross, he can now pour out his love without measure upon anyone who simply accepts Christ. All right, what's the uh, doctrine of the cross which does away with sin and slavery? Redemption, correct. Redemption views man as in slavery to sin and to Satan, born with a nature of sin which is in rebellion against God, born under the authority of Satan, and born under the obligation to keep God's law perfectly. Redemption removes us and sets us free from all of this. Redemption removes me from slavery to sin so that I don't have to sin anymore. Redemption removes me from being the possession and under the authority of Satan so that I'm no longer under his authority. It also removes me from the jurisdiction of God's holy law. I don't have to keep it because I've already paid the maximum penalty which it demands. I can't keep it, so I had to pay the maximum penalty, which was death with Christ. All right? So these are removed as barriers. And then, what's the next one for spiritual death? Substitutionary death, right. And so that removed the problem of me being spiritually dead and unable to comprehend and know God as a person without the right kind of life to know God who is a spirit. And the whole thing together of the cross is what? Reconciliation, which means that Christ, through his death, has completely removed every barrier that separated man from God. And now God shows this to man to remove the enmity which man through guilt has against God. All right, now we've covered this. We've also covered identification, which is built on the finished work of Christ. We've covered justification, 
And then under identification, we took up the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We talked about forgiveness. We talked about freedom from Satan. And we'll talk more about freedom from law. Today, we want to talk about regeneration, which is related to Christ's death in my place so that now God can give me life in place of spiritual death. He can give me spiritual life. Talk about indwelling and talk about security of the one who is saved. All right. Regeneration. Definition. The work of the Holy Spirit giving me spiritual life at the moment of accepting Christ. work of the Holy Spirit giving me spiritual life at the moment of accepting Christ. The main scriptures, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 16, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 23 through 24, Titus chapter 3, verse 5 and 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 23 through 25 all right now since you have already covered John 3 in your John class I'm just going to give you the salient points the main significance of that passage to this doctrine in John chapter 3 first of all Jesus shows that all men, even the best of men, are born spiritually dead. And so he tells uh, the most sincere religious man of his day, Nicodemus, who was called the teacher of Israel in John 3.10, 3, which means he was the greatest teacher in Israel, the leading theologian of his day, like the ones we see represented as such in Saturday Evening Post and so forth, who, like Nicodemus today as then, are spiritually dead for the most part. And so we see that everyone needs it, even the ones who are sincerely trying to earn God's acceptance with every waking breath. So John 3 shows that all need to be born again because they're born spiritually dead. Secondly, it shows that without the new birth, a man cannot see or understand the kingdom of God, nor perceive God as a person. Third, it shows that regeneration is a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in answer to faith in Christ plus nothing. That's shown in John 3, verses uh, 14 through 16, where the way a person is born again is given by Jesus himself. Okay. It's a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in immediate answer to faith in Christ. Ephesians 4, verses 23 through 24 give us another thing. It shows that this spiritual life 
is God's life. The moment that I accept Christ, believe he died for my falling short of God's standards, then I am given the very life of God. And it says that that new life is a nature which is created in holiness and righteousness, just like God is. The new life has God's character in it. So it says to put on the new self, which is created after God in holiness and righteousness. Titus 3, verse 5 says that the new birth is not on the basis of anything I can do. Titus 3, 5 says, Not by works of righteousness, which we do, but according to his mercy he saves us, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23 through 25 shows that the new birth is brought about by the Holy Spirit using God's Word on our hearts. In a sense, there's a parallel between conception physically, which brings about physical life, and conception spiritually, which brings about spiritual life. Now, of course, the semen of a physical relationship brings a, it gives it gives birth to a life which will ultimately come forth as a human being. And the, the semen of the Spirit is the Word of God which the Holy Spirit uses upon the heart, applies it in living power to the heart, and causes us to be conceived spiritually, and through the work of the Holy Spirit we're given new life, spiritual life. Illustrations. Read the Van Dusen letter about the TV illustration. I think it's one of the best going for illustrating the new birth, what it's like. For instance, we know that in this room right now there are people talking, there are people dancing, there are people singing and so forth, but we can't see or hear them, yet they're here. And if we were to tell a man from... Uh, inner Australia, an aborigine, that that was true, he'd say, you're crazy in his heart, because he's never seen TV. But the minute that we bring a TV set in here, plug it into the power, turn the stations, we begin to pick up the people who are dancing and talking and so forth all around us right now. You see, in order to perceive these waves that are invisible around us, you've got to have the instrument which picks them up. And Christ is our instrument. When we receive Christ into our life, he becomes, in a sense, our receiver of divine phenomena. And when Christ comes into our life, God, who has been all along, all around us, is then made understandable and perceivable. And that's the work of the new birth. We're given a new life which Christ comes to live in, whereby he gives us the ability to see and understand God and know him personally, not just as, as some obscure abstract philosophy, but a real personal being with whom we are now in relation and now a child. So a diagram... Remember the diagram that I gave you earlier to demonstrate spiritual death? 
Man was originally created a trichotomous being, or at least a being that had three dimensions of life, if you happen to be a dichotomist. It doesn't make any difference. The truth is the same. Man is created with a dimension of life called physical life, which is his physical body. And he is created with soul, which is his immaterial being. It's the part of him which checks out when we die physically. Physical death is the separation of the soul from the body. And in the soul there is the image of God, which is will, intellect, emotion, moral reasoning power, conscience, and everlasting existence. Everyone's going to live somewhere forever. It's what you do with Christ that determines where you're going to live. And so the image of God is in the soul of man, and man's immaterial life relates to the physical world about him. The soul, through the five senses, is able to perceive and establish a worldview of reality about physical phenomena about us. But at the very center of being, man's being, there was spiritual life. And man was originally created with this higher dimension of immaterial life through which alone he could know and understand and perceive God. In spiritual life there is the perceptive uh, means of seeing God which we sometimes call faith. Faith is a way of seeing in the spiritual realm. It is not just blindly looking at something which, since you can't reason it out, you just say, well, then I'll go over to faith, which is unreasonable. Faith is reasonable because it actually perceives God. And so when man sinned against God, God said, in the day that you sin against me, you'll die, and instantly... Man lost spiritual life, and all men have been born spiritually dead since that time. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus he had to be born again. He was born physically, but not spiritually. And every man has to be born again, or he cannot really know God. So along comes the message of Christ. Someone presents Christ to me and tells me that I've got a door to my life, which is my will. And the minute that a guy says, all right, I don't understand it all, which is consistent, he can't understand it all because he doesn't have spiritual life, but he says on the basis of faith, I'm going to accept the fact that Christ died for me and the best way I know how, with the next to no faith at all that I have, I'm going to call upon the name of the Lord and simply accept the gift of pardon which you say Christ did died to give me. In that moment, that's how much faith it takes to be saved. I prayed, God, if you're real, then the best way I know how, though I don't understand it, I'm accepting the gift of pardon which Christ offers. At that instance, Christ came into my life. Because it isn't how much faith you have, it's whether you're placing it in the right one and what he did. Instantly, although I didn't know it, I had no emotional experience, some do, most don't. 
Christ came into my heart through the Holy Spirit, and he imparted new life instantly. The Bible had been a dull and interesting book to me before. I couldn't understand it. I'd read it many times but couldn't understand it. Instantly, I began to understand some of the simple things of the Scripture. I began to understand for the first time in my whole life what some of the things the Bible was saying because this spiritual life is the part of me that can understand and accept the things of God and the, and the Christ working in me through the Holy Spirit began to immediately illuminate me in this new nature, which we call spiritual life. And I began to perceive within what God is like. You know, I've led many atheists to Christ with this little diagram. So take it for what it's worth. When a guy says, well, you're saying... Uh, God loves me, I don't believe there's a God. And I just say, well, you know, that's really consistent with what you are. You're, you're, you're spiritually dead. You don't have the ability to understand the things of God. So to say that you're an atheist or you're an agnostic is consistent with what you are. Now let me show you why I, I know there's a God and why I know that I'm in a relationship with Him. And I just use this illustration to show that that the, a person must come to initial step of accepting what Christ did for them before they can understand the deeper things of God. And I just say the reason you're blind is because you don't have the right kind of life. It's not a problem of your intelligence. You're, you're as intelligent as anyone can be. But it isn't a matter of intelligence. A man can have the most brilliant physical phenomena accumulation and still not know the simplest thing of spiritual truth. So what you need is not more intellect or not more information, but the right kind of life. And I've had guys say, okay, and accept Christ just simply in their heart, and 15 minutes later they, they're understanding spiritual truth and beginning to move on. Yes, sir. in the soul because you see that the, there are two forces at work in the spiritual realm one is Satan the other is the Holy Spirit that's why it's so dangerous when people with good intentions sort of open themselves up to the spiritual realm because the Holy Spirit's not the only spirit at work in that realm and there are acts of physical healing accomplished by Satan in order to keep a man blinded. And uh, I've seen cases of this where a man actually had a physical illness healed by the power of Satan. Yes, sir. No. You see, the Holy Spirit can communicate phenomena to the soul, that's how you get saved. So can Satan. Satan can communicate things that are not perceivable by the five senses to the soul. 
Now, the thing is, we're a lot more susceptible to Satan's illumination than we are to God's. And there's only one... You see, what does this teach us about the gospel? It teaches us that we've got to stick with what God said to tell them. And we've got to stop trying to prove God, but declare what God says he will use through the power of the Holy Spirit to bring them to faith. There's only one message that will bring men to faith, and it has to always be related to what Christ did for us on the cross. Therefore, most people get off in intellectual arguments with non-Christians, which is the worst thing you can do, because it's like trying to take a man born blind and, and convince him when he doesn't want to be convinced that there's a rainbow. Now, you're looking at it, you can see the rainbow, and everything's clear to you, but he's never seen a rainbow. And so you just can't, by logical argument, prove to him that there's a rainbow. What you've got to do is give him eyesight. Now, the minute he gets eyesight, he can look at it for himself. And that's the way it is. And that's why it's so important to the gospel to understand this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 2, especially chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, Paul emphasizes sticking to the gospel, which is that men are spiritually dead, they're separated from God, they can't do anything to gain God's acceptance, so therefore Christ has died for what we couldn't do. He's paid the penalty. Now God offers a free gift of forgiveness. Yes, sir. He doesn't give us spiritual life. I say he, he can communicate from the spiritual realm. No. No. Satan has the power to heal, and if you read the book of Revelation, chapter uh, 13, you'll see where it says he's going to do acts of healing in the great tribulation, which is a seven-year period just before Christ comes back to this earth. He is going to deceive the world by, as it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 13, through wonders, miracles, and powers. He's going, and those are the three words, by the way, that are used of Christ's miracles. Wonders, signs, and powers. Right, it's plagiarism, right. It's satanic plagiarism and counterfeit. He can counterfeit a great many of the miracles that the Holy Spirit does. And that's why we're held accountable when a person, if a person performs a miracle, and most of you are going to see miracles performed right before your very eyes, because we are in the last days. And the, the Bible says we'd see a tremendous outbreak of supernatural phenomena in the power of Satan. So you're going to have to weigh whether that's from God or not on the basis of what the man says about it and significance he gives. If it's contrary to the gospel, then it is of Satan. Yes, sir. Well, it's my opinion that they are right. Let's press on. All right, the significance of the gospel. You see, now why do I say something like that? Galatians chapter 1. 
Paul says, If I or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel than that which I've preached, let him be accursed. He said, As I said before, so say I again, If any man bring any other gospel than that which I preached, let him be accursed. And Paul was saying, Even if I change my own gospel, I'd be accursed. So what is the gospel? Well, it's the cross over here. This is the gospel. This is what we've been talking about, the fact that Christ alone could remove the barriers of sin and so forth that separated us from God and that we can do nothing but accept a gift of salvation. If we add anything to it, it cannot be on the basis of grace anymore. Grace says that there is no human merit is simply accepting a gift. Now, if you depart from the gospel of grace, then you are false. And even an angel from heaven is false. And the angel Moroni is no exception to that in the Mormon faith. He's brought another gospel. There are many other gospels, not just in the places that you mentioned, but around. In fact, there are some who call themselves genuine Christians who are preaching a false gospel because they're adding works to grace. All right, pressing on. What is the significance of this new birth to living the Christian life? Turn to 1 John chapter 3. Verse 9. No one who is born of God practices sin. Now, this is in the present tense. It means to habitually practice sin. 1 John 3, 9. No one who is born of God habitually practices sin because his seed abides in him. God's seed is this new spiritual life. And he cannot sin. He refers back to the seed. That is this new spiritual nature that is in us. This new nature that is in us cannot sin. It is impossible. It's born in the likeness of God, and it simply cannot sin. Just, uh, and it goes on to say, because he is born of God. That is, this new nature is born directly from God. It is the direct work of the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, the significance of this to living the Christian life is that this new nature cannot sin and it has in it the predisposition to follow God. Just as your old sin nature has the predisposition to go contrary to God's will, so this new nature will always desire to follow God. It cannot sin, and it has within it the desire to follow God. And that's why a Christian cannot habitually practice sin. That's what I was talking about the other day. You take a pig, you wash it up, you perfume it, you put a uh, ribbon around its neck, put it in the house, and yet weeks later, if you leave the door ajar and that pig gets out, it'll go straight for one place the mud puddle. 
because it's only washed on the outside, its nature's not changed. But if you could take a pig and give it the nature of a lamb, lambs hate mud, and therefore the pig might fall into the mud, but he wouldn't be happy there, he'd want out. Yes, sir. your question relates to this. Number one, if you have a person who's been brought up in a Christian environment where he's, he's exposed to the right way of living, when he believes he's going to have an easier time not sinning than the one who has been raised in a gross environment and then is born again. I say that's wrong for this reason. Your definition of sin is what happens outwardly but God's definition of sin is what happens inwardly, and the person who outwardly appears righteous may be more sinful than the person who outwardly appears gross. Because in the eyes of God, it's not what you do as much as what you think that constitutes sin. And that's the whole point of the Law of Moses and the Sermon on the Mount. Well, the, it still remains that the Holy Spirit will change that person's life. Working, yeah, he may have a harder time. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, this is true that when a man looks at a person who becomes a believer and he's been in a gross life and it's taking the Holy Spirit a while to pull him out of that, to change his life, positionally God sees him as holy and without blame, but in his experience he hasn't learned what he has in Christ yet. All right, the unbeliever looking at that may say, look, this guy's a sinner. Look at him, and you say he's a Christian. Well, you see, I would use a case like that to show what grace means. And I've seen guys come to Christ on starting out a conversation just like that by simply saying, Look, a Christian is not one who doesn't sin. He's one who's a justified sinner. The difference between you and Joe over there, who is a Christian and sinning, is that Christ has died for his sins and he's accepted it as a gift, and you haven't. So the reason you're not with God is not because you sin, but because you haven't accepted God's provision for sin, and he has. You see? That's powerful, buddy. <laughs> All right, pressing on. This new nature will always desire to follow God. And for, uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 17 also brings this out, where it says that uh, the Spirit wars against the flesh. It wars against the flesh because the spirit wants to follow God. And this is talking about the human spirit. It's talking about the new nature warring against the flesh, which is the predisposition to rebel against God or the old nature of sin. So 
The spirit wars against the flesh because it wants to follow God. Your flesh wants to go its own self-centered way. Now, one of the surest evidences that a person is a believer, if you're looking for an evidence to give someone assurance that they truly have become a Christian, is that when a person becomes a Christian, a new believer, there is a great stepping up of being aware of temptation and a warfare within. There's a civil war that really becomes evident because this new nature of spiritual life is in you. So therefore, it's an evidence that you have spiritual life, even though there's this warfare in you, and you have to learn to let the Holy Spirit work it out. Now, indwelling of the Spirit, switching over to another doctrine, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, At the moment of salvation, definition, the Holy Spirit takes up permanent residence in the believer where he remains to make them holy. In other words, the Holy Spirit doesn't come to sit around inside of the believer. He comes to remodel them. All right? but it is uh, as essential the Holy Spirit taking up permanent residence in the believer at the instant of accepting Christ. Your main scripture on this, Romans 8, 9. Romans 8, 9 says that not to have the Holy Spirit is not to be a believer. Every person who accepts Christ has the Holy Spirit living in him. Now, there was a short transition period that is recorded in the book of Acts. Jesus in John 14, verses 17, or 16 and 17, predicted that there was going to be a new kind of relationship with the Holy Spirit available to every believer, which was never available in the Old Testament. He says, He has been with you, but He shall be in you. Now, this new ministry of the Holy Spirit started after the resurrection of Christ and his ascension to the Father, where God accepted the fact that Christ's death in our place settled the problem of sin. If Christ was not if Christ had not gone to the cross and God accepted his payment for our sins, and if indeed we hadn't have died with Christ so that judicially we have already died for what we are, sinners. If that were not true, the Holy Spirit couldn't touch you with a ten-foot pole. The reason that God is legally free to come and take up permanent residence in the believer now, since the resurrection, is because in Christ we have been put to death judicially for our sin nature. So it's already judged, and now God is not restrained by the presence of the sin nature in your life. You have been put to death. Legally, you're dead. Now God sees you as in the resurrection life of Christ over which sin has no authority and against which God does not have to bring any judgment. How can you be judged again for what you are when you've already been put to death for what you are? Romans 6. All right, now, because of that, the Holy Spirit today 
indwells every believer at the moment of salvation and is free to work in our lives to change, change our inner motivations and bring, it to, bring our inner motivations to the will of God. That's why we can say that a man is free, that he's not under any law, he doesn't have to try to keep any standards, whether man-made or by God-made, because the Holy Spirit is now living within him to work into him through the Word of God what God wants. And he, instead of saying, do this, he changes our inner desire so that we want to do it. We're not commanded to do it. We're changed so that we want to do God's will as we walk in the Spirit. And that's why we're not under the law. Who needs a law when you want to do what the law said anyway, but you don't have to have your old nature rebelling against the law? And so the Holy Spirit comes to live in us because of this. Now, during the book of Acts, there was a short transition period, and this is where your people who are off on their doctrine of the Holy Spirit really get off. The first instant of the Holy Spirit indwelling a person happened in, in uh, Acts chapter 2 with the Jews who were already believers through the ministry of Christ and John the Baptist. There were 120 of them who were in one place waiting for the promise that Jesus had given them, that the Holy Spirit would come to dwell in them. The first indwelling of the Spirit took place with these 120 Jews who were in a covenant relationship with God from the Old Testament times. So God followed the pattern of covenant relationship in, in initiating the new ministries of the Holy Spirit made possible by the New Testament truth. So the Holy Spirit began indwelling with people who were already believers from Old Testament times, 120. Then Peter went out and preached the gospel, and immediately Jews believed, and the indication is that they received the Holy Spirit simultaneous with believing, which is the norm for today. But in Acts, this was in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 8, we have the next operation of integration, these New Testament ministries. In Acts chapter 8, we have Samaritans brought into these new ministries of the Holy Spirit. Samaritans were half Jews and half Gentiles. But since they were half Jews physically, they were still in a covenant relationship with God. So that is from the Old Testament times. So this is where the ministry of the Holy Spirit was next initiated. These people believed... But Peter was the one who was given the keys to the kingdom of heaven because he was the first one to recognize who Jesus really was in Acts chapter 16. So he was given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now what does a key do? It opens a door. That's right. Peter had the exclusive right to open the door of the New Testament ministries of the Holy Spirit to the various segments of society. Philip went down to Samaria, the people believed, and became Old Testament believers. But when Peter came down, laid his hands on these people, 
they were initiated into the New Testament era. They received the Holy Spirit after they believed. Now, from that point on, the indication of the Scripture is that whenever a believer, uh, a Samaritan believed, he received the Holy Spirit simultaneous with believing because they had been already integrated into these new ministries. Now, the next uh, integration is in Acts chapter 10 with Gentiles. Now, they had no covenant relationship to God at all. So they were next. Here we had covenant relationship, part covenant relationship, no covenant relationship. So in Acts chapter 10, Peter preaches to the Gentiles. Now he's the one with the keys, remember. He used the keys in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 10. He preached, and while he was still speaking, the Holy Spirit came upon the people who believed in their hearts. Acts chapter 10, verses 43 and 44. So the Gentiles were integrated into the New Testament ministry. Now after that, from that time on, whenever a Gentile would believe, he would receive the Holy Spirit simultaneous with believing because the operation integration had taken place. Now there's only one other problem of indwelling, and that's found in Acts chapter 19 where we have the case of the people who were flung all around the, the, the world at that time who had believed through the ministry of Jesus or John the Baptist. And they were Old Testament believers. Now, when they would find people who were believers, they would ask them first, as Paul asked these people, he said, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, We don't even know if there is a Holy Spirit. Then he knew they hadn't. So he said, he, he told them about John's message of preaching the Christ who would come, but he said, Christ has already come, he's, raised, he's been raised from the dead, and when they heard this new message and believed it, instantly they were integrated into the New Testament ministry. Now, after these Old Testament believers died off in one generation, that was never a case again. You could never have an Old Testament believer today. They were believers before this initiation of the Spirit's ministry. Now, this is where many people get their idea that you are baptized with the Holy Spirit in the sense that after you're a believer, that by praying through or by making some special profession of faith, you receive a second blessing. And the second blessing teaches that when you became a believer, you didn't receive the Holy Spirit, but when you uh, enter into this greater degree of faith, then you receive the Holy Spirit. And they use passages like Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9 to prove that, showing that they misunderstand the whole point. Now, the norm today is set forth in the epistles, which say that every believer has the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 9 says that if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a believer. Now, another key passage on this. I'd like to answer your questions, but I think that I can say more to the most by keeping on. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Page 325. 
In him, Christ, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, in this verse, we have two aorist participles. That's very important. The verb which says, after listening or having heard the message of truth, that's aorist participle, which means something that happened at a point of time. All right, then there's another aorist participle, having also believed. Now, this means that something that whenever you have two aorist participles in a, in a sentence, the action of the two aorist participles happen together. So at the point of time you heard, this is talking about the point when the Holy Spirit made you to hear with that inner ear. At the point of time you heard, you believed. Now, another rule of Greek grammar is this that the action of an aorist participle precedes the action of the main verb in a sentence. The action of an aorist participle precedes the action of a main verb. The main verb is, you were sealed in him. But the action of, in that were sealed is also aorist tense. So the action of the aorist tense main verb, you were sealed, has to happen in a consecutive moment, a momentary action, right after they heard, believed, they were sealed once and for all with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a grammatical proof that the Holy Spirit is received when you believe. Now, it says that he was sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, what is the significance of the Holy Spirit living in me? who has given as a pledge of our inheritance. The presence of the Holy Spirit in you is God's pledge that you've already inherited eternal life and you're going to be with him forever. And he goes on to say, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, you're already God's possession to the praise of his glory. So the presence of the Holy Spirit in you is a guarantee that you will be with God in eternity, forever. You're already made partakers of Christ's inheritance. And another significance to the Christian life from this doctrine. For God to send the person who has believed in Christ to hell, he would have to send the Holy Spirit to hell with him. Ephesians 4.30 brings that out. Now, at the moment a person believes, he's sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is God's guarantee that we have possession. But in Ephesians 4.30, it says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the, the day of redemption. Now, you're sealed when you believe. The day of redemption is when you get your resurrection body. In other words, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit from the moment you believe until you're delivered to God with a resurrection body. 
so there is no room for anyone to be lost in between. And the presence of the Holy Spirit himself is a guarantee that one cannot be lost after he's accepted Christ. Now, the Scripture teaches that sin grieves the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't make him leave. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 is very important on this, where we have people who have been involved in committing sexual immorality with prostitutes. Now, what the writer shows there is not that gross sin has caused the Holy Spirit to leave our body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit, but the, that the fact that the Holy Spirit remains in them is the reason they should depart from gross sin, because whatever we do, the Holy Spirit is present on the scene. So gross sin doesn't make the Holy Spirit leave, but rather that's the thing that should show us that if the Holy Spirit is in us and we're involved in these things, it's completely incongruous with what we are. And so here it shows that the Holy Spirit is grieved with known sin. He's not grieved with unknown sin, but with known sin. But he doesn't leave. He does not leave. So the significance of this is that the Holy Spirit, in the gospel, the Holy Spirit will enlighten a person so that he can understand after he believes. And that the Holy Spirit's presence in me is to empower me to present the gospel, Acts 1.8. To the Christian life, it shows that the Holy Spirit has come to produce in me what God wants, so that it shows that I am not to live the Christian life, the Holy Spirit is. That's all important. You can't. Look, God expects one thing from you, failure. And the sooner you find that out, the more sooner you're going to utterly depend upon the Holy Spirit and try, stop trying to help him out. He doesn't need your help. He just needs you to depend on him. So that's the significance. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the wonder of your work of grace. So that it's not a matter of can we believe in Christ and then hold out, but it's a matter of simply accepting Christ and then just trusting him in his sufficiency to deal with our temptations and our problems. In Christ's name, amen.